0: From Northern California Public Media and Mench Media, welcome to Living Downstream, the environmental justice podcast. I'm your host, Steve Mencher. This time, from Sunbaked, Texas, we explore degrees of injustice, the social inequity of urban heat islands. On this episode, Texas Public Radio's Yvette Benavides takes us to Central and South Texas, where summer days are frequently in the upper 90s, but where in many low-income neighborhoods the mercury climbs even higher. And with climate change, these areas will be experiencing more extreme temperatures more frequently and for longer durations. New research shows how these hotter temperatures are taking a toll on the people who live in some city neighborhoods, typically in communities of color. The heat is affecting their bodies and their minds, effectively shortening their lives. Some of those we interview speak mostly Spanish, and we'll hear from them as they explain how they coexist with the heat. Yvette will translate, but we'll make room for these Texans to have their voices heard in their own language. What's the connection between long-standing racism in our cities and the built environment there? What can be done to reverse what the EPA and many researchers call the urban heat island effect? The answers will demand that we untangle a complex web of issues, reject some of our prejudices, and think creatively. That's essential if we want to save lives and come to grips with the changing planet, and our place in the community of people inhabiting it. Here's Yvette.
1: It will definitely cool down in a minute. I love my truck.
2: (laughs) Kayla Miranda's much-loved pickup truck is a little worse for the wear. She's giving me a tour of the Alasan Apache Courts, a public housing complex in San Antonio's uh, west side. uh, the windshield is cracked and the seats are a little worn, but the air conditioner comes on like a welcomed blue norther because it's hot. It's another summer day in San Antonio, Texas with temperatures in the upper 90s. That's what the weather app reports, but here in the Alisan Apache courts, it gets even hotter, three to seven degrees hotter than the city's average temperature. This is because of the urban heat island effect and when we are in the upper 90s, every additional degree makes a punishing difference.
1: There's around 800 on this side, and then there's about 1200 on the other side.
2: That's the number of residents in Los Courts, a public housing complex that covers 26 acres just west of downtown. It's an area that has its share of problems, but it's also a deeply knit community with a long history. It's a history that the residents are proud of. The first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt came and did the groundbreaking here. It's one of the first properties
1: in the United States that were public housing. It's definitely the first in San Antonio.
2: That was in 1939. It was on an earlier visit during the Great Depression, Eleanor Roosevelt first saw the primitive conditions that many of San Antonio's Mexican Americans were living in. Some resided in overcrowded shacks with tin roofs, dirt floors, and tar paper walls. These dwellings had no indoor plumbing and human waste poured into the unpaved streets. The city's white leadership opposed creating the public housing project dedicated to helping the Mexican-American families. This was a time when there was widespread institutional discrimination against Mexican-Americans. Many jobs were off limits. This was a population thought to be only fit for low-skill labor. It was only after Roosevelt intervened that the projects were built. And over 80 years later, the same structures still stand and are still housing the city's low-income population, predominantly Mexican-American. Around the courts, there are some trees, but not many. Shade is hard to find. The two-story buildings are constructed of hollow tile and concrete, which are perfect for trapping the sun's heat and reflecting it, creating a heat sink.
1: See this playground here? Like, it's all metal, The kids can't go there.
2: Miranda says the playground equipment gets so hot that the metal burns the hands of the children. Generally, urban heat islands are defined by looking at the temperature difference between a city and its surrounding rural areas. However, temperatures can vary widely within a city depending on the absence of leafy green space, parks, water features, and other factors creating smaller, intra-urban heat islands. Heat mapping of cities now reveals that these pockets are usually in the low-income parts of the city where communities of color live. Miranda lives in one of these San Antonio Housing Authority or Saha apartment units with her family.
1: you going to work? Mm -hmm. All right. I love you. Have a good day. Stay safe.
2: Miranda's oldest child, 16 year old Nadia, is heading off to her job at a nearby McDonald's.
1: Yeah, she works five to ten uh, five days a week. yeah, and then she's also in 11th grade. and she's in almost all AP classes, like this year she's taking advanced physics and calculus. and I'm like, don't ask me for for help with your homework because you're smarter than I am.
2: Miranda is a single mom to four children. Um, my oldest is 16. Uh,
1: then I have a 13 year old, a 12 year old, and a 4 year old. And my 4 year old, he started off as a foster. I had him since he was six months old, and now I've had him almost five years.
2: Before moving to the courts, Miranda and her family were homeless.
1: It was the worst experience I've ever had. You know, they tell you work hard, you know, save money, don't be extravagant with things, and that's exactly what I did. And then it, you know, life hit me. I remember we were standing in the bathroom of a 7-Eleven gas station. as like 6.30 in the morning where they're brushing their teeth and brushing their hair because we had slept in the car the night before. I'm failing, I'm failing as a parent. What can I do? My son had been diagnosed with autism. He has autism and epilepsy. And at the same time, I still need to work. So what can I do? It took a year and a half, but I, I got this apartment.
2: Their unit is three-bedroom, one-bathroom. Box fans are positioned strategically to keep the air flowing in the front room that also features a small window unit. Both were above the din of the television. From my place on the couch, I can see just beyond the small living room, the narrow alcove of a kitchen.
1: Now these units are, are, are very small. The, the square footage in this apartment, 789 square feet. That's the average of a one bedroom apartment at a normal complex. So, you know, we have five people squeezed into a small space. But for, for me personally, I see the benefit of having the smaller space because it means your electric bill is less.
2: The Elson Apache courts were built before air conditioning became widely available. But it needs to be noted that the weather in San Antonio has gotten hotter and hotter since Eleanor Roosevelt's visit here eight decades ago. Carbon dioxide emission from the burning of petroleum and other human activities is making the planet warmer, and that's increasing the number of extreme heat days in San Antonio. The South Texas city now has many more days of temperatures over 100 degrees, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Recorded in the decade of the 1930s, there were 61 days over 100 degrees in that 10-year period. More recently, between 2010 and 2019, there were 191 recorded days over 100 degrees, a tripling of the number of extreme heat days. The San Antonio Climate Ready Plan predicts that it's going to get worse and that by 2060, the city will experience over 60 days a year of 100 degrees or more. So, if you do the math, that means at least 600 days of temperatures of 100 degrees or more in the decade of the 2060s. That's just 40 years away.
1: When I first moved in, there were no window units. I had to provide my own. I had to come up with the money to buy a window unit per room, about $150 each.
2: Having air conditioning can be a literal lifesaver, however while cranking up the AC can be a tempting strategy for surviving the heat, there are drawbacks. A study by the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory showed that air conditioning dumps waste heat into the surrounding outside area. This increases the heat island effect and adds to the demand for air conditioning. The study, published in the Journal of Geophysical Research Atmospheres, found that air conditioning can add an additional 1 to 2 degrees to the outside air compared to typical summer weather. Furthermore, running the AC raises electric bills. Lower-income communities who tend to live in less energy-efficient homes end up paying disproportionately higher energy bills. And for residents of the courts with no extra income, that means the air conditioner stays off.
1: With that huge unit there, my bill is $250, 300 $350. If you imagine somebody who's living on Social Security, has no other type of income coming in, and they only give you $107 credit off your rent towards um, the electrical bill, then it's almost impossible to pay that electrical bill.
2: But if residents don't run the air conditioner, to survive, they have little choice but to open up the windows and front door, and that exposes them to the possibility of becoming victims of crime.
1: There's gunshots here all the time. You you never know. It happens during the day. It happens at night. You're going to open your doors and windows, and people are walking by, and they're seeing your stuff open. They're going to break into your unit because you have it open. It's easy access for them. And... If you want to protect yourself, <laughs> don't do those things. You just have to
2: keep the the doors and windows locked. Miranda's neighbor Sophia is also alarmed by the crime in the area. She's originally from Mexico and speaks limited English. She didn't want to give her last name.
3: México. entonces. <laughs> Yo siempre los mantengo no que me dé miedo porque ya me acostumbré, pero pero trato de no ponerme en el lugar equivocado a la hora equivocada. Yo veo eso me meto en la noche. En y a veces nada más en el día también andan.
2: Sofia says there's a lot of police and gunshots just like in Mexico. As I talk to her, she's watering a makeshift vegetable garden on her front porch. For pots, she uses whatever she can find, large tin cans and plastic containers repurposed. Nevertheless, she's able to grow tomatoes, cantaloupes and peppers. She's even cultivated a few avocado pits into little trees. She said she'd like to be able to plant trees around her unit, but she's not allowed to plant into the ground of the courts. It's her dream to move away from the courts and have a yard with a garden where she can plant trees. Sophia says that's why it's so hot here, because of the lack of trees. She calls the heat here oppressive and says it's bad for the children and elderly. No one can be outside between noon and 5 PM because it's so intensely hot. In fact, according to a report from the EPA published September 2021, the extreme heat is actually more deadly in neighborhoods where poverty rates are higher. In the report, Climate Change and Social Vulnerability in the United States, researchers found that rising temperatures resulting from climate change will lead to an increase in heat-related illnesses and deaths in low-income areas. Communities of color are being disproportionately impacted by the hotter weather, and it's taking a toll on their health and mortality. To put it bluntly, the heat is a killer.
4: The three things that we think about in terms of deadliness of heat is how much you're exposed to heat, how sensitive your body might be, and what level of coping capacity you have.
2: Vivek Shandas is a professor of climate adaptation at Portland State University. He's been studying the heat island effect on low-income communities for more than 10 years.
4: What we are finding across the country is that many of the hottest areas in um, cities and regions were consistently in areas where lower-income um, and communities of color were living. And
2: we were scratching our heads as to why that's the case. Shandas used satellite mapping to chart the heat islands and discovered something. The hottest parts of the city were in areas that had been redlined. Redlining was the racially discriminatory practice that labeled certain neighborhoods as off-limits for home mortgages and other financial services, like student loans, business loans, and insurance. These were neighborhoods with high populations of African Americans, Hispanics, and immigrants. We looked
4: at 108 cities across the country and found consistent patterns between the redlined areas and hotter temperatures. And on average, that was only, that was about... Um, five degrees Fahrenheit from the redlined areas to their non-redlined counterparts though there were many cities that varied and some that were as high as 13 degrees Fahrenheit.
2: During the hottest days of the summer, every degree is felt. According to the National Center for Biotechnical Information, during a heat wave, every one degree increase in temperature can increase the risk of dying by as much as 2.5 percent. Higher temperatures can strain the heart and make breathing more difficult, increasing the risk for cardiac arrest and asthma attacks.
4: But if you don't have air conditioning or you can't run it because you don't have that kind of financial um, resource, and that coping capacity, what we call, and let's say you have a pre-existing health condition, like you have asthma or something like that, and in your, you're in a neighborhood that's five or six degrees hotter than other neighborhoods around you, that could be a lethal difference in terms of temperatures.
2: The public health concern of heat waves and heat islands once could have been designated a problem for the Sun Belt, but with climate change, not anymore.
4: Though in the Pacific Northwest, like we saw this last summer of 2021, when a heat dome descends upon the Northwest, like everybody's scrambling. No one knows what to do. People don't have real options. There's messaging is really uh, confusing from various uh, agencies, public agencies. Lots of folks didn't know what to do, and we saw... Uh, going up into Canada down to Oregon, about almost a thousand people that passed away as a result of that heat dome. So the folks who die, for example, from heat waves are often folks who are uh, marginalized in society. So in some ways, because of their identity, because of their income, because of their immigrant status or something like that, they're often very isolated and don't have access to uh, these resources are the ones that are struggling the most with
2: public health. It sounds simple. Combat urban heat islands by planting trees. These are areas that lack leafy green spaces. They trap heat and rob the area of the benefit of overnight cooling. So let's plant trees. But which species of trees is best?
5: (laughs) What is a good tree to plant for urban heat management? Well, that's the the, the billion-dollar question.
2: Kevin Lanza is a professor at the University of Texas Health School of Public Health in Austin. He's part of a team studying urban heat islands, their impact on people, and how to mitigate their impact. He says instead of spending a lot of time and resources planting trees that aren't suited to the location and won't survive, there should be a community-connected, comprehensive plan.
5: And so you have to understand which trees are going to survive and thrive with projected rising temperatures, as well as what are the different benefits from each tree species, which researchers are working on right now to quantify and to specifically identify which trees would work best for which situations.
2: So maybe this is a no-brainer. For shade, we need leafy trees, a full canopy of them, to provide lots of shade. But there's much more to think through than just that, it turns out. Too dense a canopy has its disadvantages including trapping humidity and warm air. There are different properties to think through.
5: How much allergen does this tree emit? How much space does this tree need for it to root and to thrive and survive? How much water does this tree need for it to survive? As well as how much water does this tree control in terms of a stormwater management Piece with its root system.
2: So, what we need is information and data about these concentrated heat zones. I eight met eight up with Lanza eight. and other members of the Urban Heat Island Monitoring Team old in old. Austin. They were uh, gathering to prepare probably, to install monitors. I'm
5: connected now. <laughs> okay, well the good news is this. We can, we can just give each of you one and then <laughs> later it. we can... What we're doing it. today is we're at the North Austin YMCA in the Runberg neighborhood in North Austin and we are going to be installing as a fixed site network these different air temperature and relative humidity sensors at different sites based on land cover. So we'll have a couple of these installed over parking lot areas to potentially capture higher temperature areas. So we have a community garden in the back where we'll be installing a sensor. Lastly, we'll be walking over to a bus stop that has a a uh, shelter above it, and we'll be installing a sh- uh, sensor underneath that shelter to see how that works as a climate change adaptation strategy.
2: The sensors look like white small sconce lamps, but they don't create light. They monitor the heat and the humidity, Two stress conditions that make being outside in the summer unpleasant and depleting. Extreme heat is hard on human beings, not just physically, but also mentally. Those who already live with mental illness are particularly vulnerable, as the heat can exacerbate their condition. Some medications impede the body's ability to regulate temperatures and can cause dehydration or heat stroke. When Lanza and his team installed the monitors, it was midday as a crowd of people sat or stood to wait for the next bus. It was loud, chaotic, and very hot. Lanza explains that these are the stressful conditions that make the lives of many more difficult than they need to be.
5: You may be immediately adjacent to a busy street. You may be getting exhaust fumes from these cars. You may be very uncomfortable because of these high temperatures because there is no shade, there's no respite, this experience one has may affect their mental health and this also may later affect their physical health if they continue to choose not to want to be on these routes that are uncomfortable for them and could lead to lower physical activity levels and therefore a host of chronic diseases.
2: Lanza proposes that cities develop a comprehensive strategy to blunt the impact of urban heat islands. He wants cities to be thinking about cool corridors.
5: Cool corridors is this idea of creating cities that are walkable, bikeable, livable, and doing so by implementing different active transportation infrastructure, such as sidewalks, bike lanes, trails, along with spaces for physical activity, such as parks and gyms.
2: Connecting parks to neighborhoods with shaded pathways means people will be more likely to get outside and be physically active.
5: It's hot already, and it's projected to get even hotter with climate change and continuing uh, urban development. And so what you have here is, hopefully, a network of active transportation infrastructure that is also layered with heat management strategies to provide an engaging space for not only physical activity, but safe and comfortable physical activity.
2: Not far from the bus stop is where Marta Garcia lives with her husband and children. Garcia doesn't speak English. She tells me about how unsafe she feels on the streets in her neighborhood.
3: Y yeah, pues como le digo no tenemos una no hay una sombra donde pararnos para descansar cuando tenemos que salir a la tienda o que ir a la escuela o simplemente caminar con los niños a un par.
2: She and the children walk from the school at 3:30 in the afternoon when the heat is oppressive and relentless. She tells me that the children cry because it is so hot.
3: Con calor mis niñas llorando porque iban caminando. Y en el calor a las tres, tres y media de la tarde yo regresaba con ellas caminando, ni hab- una sombra. Yo quería buscar una sombra para descansar unos minutos. No hay, no había una sombra. Es muy duro, la verdad.
2: García es taking part in a community outreach effort by Go Austin, Vamos Austin or GAVA. Francis Acuña is the climate resilience community lead organizer.
6: We are talking to residents uh, so we could get their input, their experiences and their suggestions for um, a project we're doing with UT Health and um, an Office of Sustainability. In order to create strategies and projects so we could be able to hopefully uh, work with whatever residents are, are needing in their community based on their, on their experiences.
2: Acuña says Gaba has been working to map the heat islands of Austin and they found that some parts of the city are hotter and some of these are areas that are lower income and predominantly Latino.
6: So we drove cars in our neighborhoods which was southeast and then uh, like Riverside, Montopolis area and then we came in north Austin. So it turned out that that heat mapping came out like north Austin. Was a lot hotter than it is southeast. So we are working in this community in order to to get the residents' perspective and how does that affect? How does the heat affect their their um, their health, their community, their everyday life in in their neighborhood? We have a lot of construction workers. Unfortunately, many of them go in the bus. I done so far nine interviews. And at least six of them ride the bus.
2: Garcia tells Acuña a similar story. When she must take the bus to go a farther distance, she says the bus stop is just a stop. There's no bench to sit. There are no trees. There's no awning or anything else to shield her from the sun.
3: Incluso yo buscaba una sombra donde <inaudible> poder estar. Para estaba caliente cuando llegamos en el. La más de 100 grados.
2: Garcia says that many of the homes in her neighborhood don't have trees. She says the walk to her children's school is totally bereft of them, but also of sidewalks. There's no shade when they walk to school or to the park. And now there are even fewer trees than there were before. In February, Texas experienced a rare winter storm that brought snow and days of sub-freezing temperatures that killed many trees, but also killed more than 170 people and caused at least $20 billion in damage. It may seem counterintuitive, but the winter storm was caused by global warming. According to a study published in the journal Science, in September 2021, the warming of the Arctic is leading to an increase in extreme cold in places as far south as Texas. This also put a strain on the Texas electrical grid and caused widespread power outages causing a statewide emergency.
6: Breaking news this morning, Texans across our state can expect a scheduled power outage in your area to help conserve energy. ERCOT, the agency that manages the state's energy, declared an emergency alert level three earlier this morning. That's after a day of record-breaking energy use.
2: So rotating outages are underway across the state right now. We were told repeatedly that the outages were rotating, but for many families like the Garcias in Austin, they were not rotating. The Garcias were without power and water for a week.
3: Because my children also had hunger. They had hunger. And then you feel like, what are you going to do if there's nothing? If you could have something in the water and there's no light. I mean, it's something that we've had, but it's very sad. I want to cry.
2: The food in the refrigerator spoiled, though a friend provided cases of bottled water and a meal for Garcia's family. Her children cried often that week, saying they were cold, hungry, and thirsty. Garcia and her husband melted snow just to flush the toilet. The nights were like years, an eternity, she said, and they all felt desperate.
3: Para los niños, para nosotros, que es muy desesperante. Mis hijos, yo los miraba desesperados.
2: Now she worries that the grid could fail again during the hottest part of the summer. Just that week the power went out again for an entire day. She and her children spent that time at a McDonald's to stay cool. She believes that the temperatures are hotter and for longer periods of time with each passing year. The heat exacerbates her husband's asthma and Garcia's diabetes. Doing something about the urban heat islands is a way to take stress off the grid during extreme weather like prolonged heat waves. Another thing that concerns Garcia is the traffic on her street. For Garcia, who walks with her children to and from school, the streets that lack sidewalks become even more perilous as cars speed through at 50 or 60 miles an hour. Garcia recalls one terrible day when another mom and her three children walked just a few paces ahead one of the children was struck by a car and killed. Kevin Lanza says there's an added bonus of adding trees. There's evidence that they slow down traffic.
5: Trees, if they're placed appropriately in urban environments, they can be strategic. Reducing car speeds Because it focuses cars on the road, it provides a reference point for driving and it leads to a potentially slower speed of traffic overall.
2: There's a transportation movement in the U.S. calling for the building of complete streets, which rethinks how road space is given almost exclusively to automobiles. With a complete street, the result is a safer space for pedestrians with dedicated lanes for walking and biking away from speeding motorists. Lanza says that cool corridors should be part of a complete street.
5: If we were to flip a conventional street into a cool corridor, then you would have this infrastructure that's separated from the car at a distance to remove these individuals from those air pollutants given off by the road itself by the cars on the road and other processes you would also have purposeful shading that allows individuals to travel in comfort and potentially start a habit or a routine that then also may lead to a modal shift that is meaning a shift from choosing to use a car or other motor vehicle and instead deciding to active commute, using one's own feet or own bike to power their way from one point to another, which has its own health benefits, but at the same time, it's a climate change mitigation strategy because we're moving folks out of their cars.
2: The problem with this strategy is that areas getting the complete street upgrade tend to be more affluent, where bike enthusiasts have already staked a claim. The lower income parts of the city are less likely to score these amenities, which is a fact that Marta Garcia seems to know
3: well.
2: When she walks the streets where there are no sidewalks to get to the bus where there's no shade, she must sometimes wait for the bus for upwards of 30 minutes or longer, sometimes in the heat of the day. She says it's terrible that although she pays taxes, her neighborhood doesn't have the most basic things to improve the lives of those in her community. <laughs> It's clear that for those directly affected by urban heat islands, getting to solutions to confront the problems requires community involvement. But Vivek Shandas points out that every community is different and those solutions need to be tailored to those specific local needs. What
4: we really need to be thinking about is what are the strategies, What are the, what's the social infrastructure that communities need to put in place to be able to engage the property owners, to be able to then reach out to potentially vulnerable individuals, to safeguard them with the necessary you know, hydration, with finding local cooling centers, being able to identify ways for them to be able to stay cool
2: Back at the Alasan Apache Courts, Kayla Miranda has become an organizer in social justice issues. She's taken on the issues related to leases, fees and evictions, but also concerns about urban heat islands. She's worked with box fan drives and has spoken out at San Antonio Housing Authority meetings about the residents' needs.
1: I founded the Coalition for Tenant Justice. I also do outreach in all the apartments. So I go from uh, property to property and try to organize the tenants to lead themselves. Uh, I meet at least once a month with with Saha staff and then uh, the tenants meet uh, several times a month. It's just, it's a lot of work, but we work really hard and we do our best (laughs) to help each other.
2: It's going to take neighborhoods and community leaders to work with City Hall to advocate for cool corridors and lowering the temperature at the urban heat islands. Meanwhile, climate change is all the more undeniable. Unless communities take action to reduce carbon in the atmosphere, extreme heat days will continue to be more frequent, and a place for a shady rest will become more scarce.
0: You've been listening to Yvette Benavides with Degrees of Injustice The Social Inequity of Urban Heat Islands. Texas Public Radio's David Martin Davies produced and mixed this episode with mixing and scoring help from TPR's news director Dan Katz. I'm Steve Mencher, the founding producer of Living Downstream, and I was the story editor. Morgan McCrae composed and scored the music. The Living Downstream theme music is by David Schulman. We also want to thank Kayla Miranda, Sophia Vivek Shandas, Kevin Lanza, Marta Garcia, and Francis Acuña. Chris Lee is radio executive producer, and Darren Lachelle is the president and CEO of Northern California Public Media. Subscribe to Living Downstream on Apple Podcasts, comment on it and rate it there, and find it wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about us on NPR One. Visit our website at norcalpublicmedia.org living. And a lot of you are finding us on Spotify, thanks. Living Downstream thanks our sponsors who make this podcast possible. A list
2: is available at norcalpublicmedia.org.